0: All right everyone, good morning Doxa. My name is Ronnie, one of the pastors here, and we are continuing our series this morning in the book of 1 Corinthians. So you want to pull out your Bible now. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. And the the guy that wrote this, right, his name was Paul. We're going to get pretty familiar with him and and he next to Jesus has probably made the the biggest mark on the world, you know, just out of any man that's ever lived. And this morning what he's going to do is as we open up to chapter two, he's gonna open up his life to us, kind of let us see into his heart, see into his mind, and reveal that the, the secret to his power and his impact was not an ability that he had, but actually a decision that he made, a resolve that he had in his heart based on what God had done. And it's a decision that's really on the table for all of us this morning. Okay. Now, if you're joining us online before, like you know, while people are turning there, I do want to say, you know, we miss you a lot. You know, there's people in this room. I've I seen some people nodding heads. Like we all know people that are that are joining the online live stream right now and then aren't with us in person that we miss and we love. And, and some of us were, like, we're kind of connecting virtually and in connection groups and seeing people like outside of this gathering. But I, for one. I am just so excited and long for the day when it's, it's safe and possible for all of us to gather together in this, this room and be near each other and, like, without a mask on, hear each other sing and see each other sing. And I do want to issue just a brief warning that when that day comes, even if I don't know you, I'm a big-time hugger. And sometimes when I don't really know somebody, that's, like, my go-to instinct to do. And so if you're watching online and I haven't met you yet, just be warned that, that, day, that day is coming. I might give you a hug. All right, let's jump in. First Corinthians chapter two it starts like this. In verse one, it says, and I, when I came to you, brothers. Okay, when I, when I came to you. This is Paul, he's writing to the Corinthians and he's reminiscing about what it was like when he came and he started that church in the great city of Corinth. He's like, hey, when I, when I came to you, this is what it was like when I met you, when I did ministry among you. And it makes me think and remember back to when we started Doxa Church, okay? The fall of of 2018, there was a a group of us that had a prayer and a dream that someday there would be like a new group of people in this city singing songs like we did this morning to Jesus, bringing glory to God and trying to figure out how we can be a people that are for the good of this city. I also remember a couple years before that, in 2016, before um, we had even moved here my my wife Caitlin and I and then Robin Lisa Warren and I don't think Titus is even born yet I'm not sure but like Lily was there and we came to to Madison and in, in the summer of 2016 just on a, a trip to to pray and consider the possibility of coming here and I'd never been here before but I just remember like walking into this place and being blown away by the beauty and the power of the city of Madison Okay, I remember standing down on Capitol Square and looking to my left down State Street towards the campus and Bascom Hill and looking up at this Capitol building to the right and just feeling this sense in me of like, how are we going to do this? Or like, how are we, who do we think we are to come here? This place is too big for us. How are we ever going to get anyone's attention here? What do we have that's going to be able to compete with all the things that this city has to offer? I remember later on, maybe a year later, we actually took like a vision trip where some of the people that eventually ended up moving here came with us, and we did kind of the same thing, and we're showing them around the city, and we're casting vision for like this is, this is what the gospel could do in this place, and we're all dreaming and praying, and then before we know it, we're being encircled by a group of uh, naked people on bikes. This is called the Naked Bike Ride, if any of you guys know this, and I just remember like at that moment feeling that same thing of how, what are we going to do to compete with this? Maybe you've got a friend or a family member that doesn't know Jesus and you feel like this with them. You know, they're so set in their ways or maybe caught up in their plans that you just are like, I just don't know if Jesus can compete with what has their attention. And Paul probably felt like this too walking into Corinth. Corinth was a wealthy, influential, beautiful, and talented city. It was actually situated on an isthmus between two bodies of water, just like us here in Madison. But look at what he says he did. Back in verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Corinth had a huge culture of talented public speakers. These people were called the sophists, okay? We get our word sophisticated from them, and they would talk in a very sophisticated way like I'm doing now. This is what they would sound like because they talked very sophisticated, right? The substance of what the sophists would say didn't matter as much as the style, right? The, the way in which they were saying it. And as Paul walked into the city, that was the culture of communication that was going on. And he walks in and he says, I'm not doing that. says, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And you can imagine, Paul was a human being, right? He was a person just like us with the same temptations and vulnerabilities and the things that we do. It would have been tempting for him to want to compete with these guys, right? The, The leading orators of the day. It would have been very humbling, probably actually even humiliating for him to deliberately choose to not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, But here's what Paul knew. Paul knew that the city of Corinth didn't need another flashy speaker. The city of Corinth didn't need another talented person, another beautiful person. The city of Corinth needed Jesus. What Paul knew when he walked into the city is that the substance of his message was actually the most powerful, life-changing reality that the world could ever hear. And Paul made a decision not to divert anyone's attention away from that message onto himself. Because this is what those, those other people were doing. Okay, the talented speakers of the day in Corinth, they weren't so much proclaiming a message, they were proclaiming themselves. And Paul knew the city didn't need him, it needed God. And so he says, and I, Paul, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The Apostle Paul was a leading intellectual of the Jewish community in his day, right? He was very smart. He was actually a brilliant man. If you read the things that he Wrote. He was an intelligent man, a talented communicator, and he actually knew a lot of things, okay? He actually knew a lot of things about the Bible and about God. But when he came to Corinth, he knew that the only thing he needed to know was this, this one thing. This one thing. He said, as I did ministry among the people of Corinth, I decided to know one thing, and one thing only, Jesus Christ and him crucified, He says, this is the whole testimony of God. I'm very familiar with the testimony of God that's recorded in the scriptures. This is the story. This is the thing that God wants to say to the world. The thing, if you could boil it down, it's summed up in this. Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul's like, when I rolled into the city, I didn't come with a nice plan for self-improvement or a new moral code for you to live by, but I came with an announcement from God about a crucified man from Nazareth. And he's not saying that literally when he came there, he only repeated these five words over and over again, like under his breath or something, Jesus Christ, Jesus crucified, Jesus Christ, and just, like, just kind of walked around like a madman, like mumbling things, no. He's also not saying that, you know, when I came to you, I made sure that I only spoke monotone so that I would sound totally uninteresting and no one would want to listen to me. That's not what he's saying either. He's saying that when he came to Corinth, his sole ambition, the thing driving him, was for Jesus to be known, not him. Jesus to be lifted up, not him. Jesus to be remembered, not him. His ambition was not to make a name for himself, but to make known the name of Jesus. Again, because Corinth didn't need somebody else like that. They didn't need another talented or wise person they needed, a savior. They needed a hero. They needed a type of hero, the only one that could save us, the one that had found a way to solve the problem of human sin. So if we think about Madison again for a second, Madison, it doesn't need another great restaurant. It doesn't need another great band. It doesn't need another great mayor. The Badgers, they don't need a quarterback because I think this year we might have found him. The Packers... On the other hand, we've only got a couple years left, guys, so we might need to find somebody in a couple years here. And in one really important sense, Madison doesn't need another great church. The problems that this city is facing, the sickness that this city is dying from, only has one cure, and that only cure comes from one person Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so Paul says in verses three and four, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He's like, remember what I looked like when I was proclaiming to you. He says, in my speech and my message, they were not in plausible, persuasive words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. As the Corinthians would remember back to what it was like when they heard Paul speak, what they would have remembered, what they would have seen, what they would have heard is a man that sounded and looked weak. At first glance, you might have seen Paul preaching or you might have been talking to him and seen him shaking and you might have thought he was afraid of public speaking. But as you leaned in and you heard him preach and you heard him talk about this testimony of God and the meaning of the cross, you realize that Paul was not afraid of people. You read about this man's life and there might have been no other man as courageous as Paul that's ever been written about. You realize as you leaned in that he wasn't shaking for a fear of embarrassment. He was shaking under the weight of a holy God of whom he was a messenger for. It wasn't that Paul wasn't confident. It's that he wasn't confident in himself. He was confident in God. It wasn't that Paul wasn't persuasive. It was that his persuasion didn't actually lead you on a road to him. It led you to Jesus. Jesus. It wasn't that as Paul spoke, he wasn't a powerful speaker. It's actually that he was such a powerful speaker that people forgot all about who he was and got lost in the glory of God. The substance of the message so outweighed the speaker and his style of communication that as Paul relays it back to them, he could have only described it as a powerful demonstration of the spirit of the living of God. In other words, when Paul spoke, people heard Jesus. Not Paul. And so then he says in verse 5, I did all this so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And you know how this goes. Every day we wake up, we check our phone, we check the news, we check the TV, and there's somebody on there, someone who wants us to put our faith in their wisdom. Someone else who's making a promise. Someone who's wanting our worship. And the whole history of humanity is just littered with story after story, person after person, hero after hero, failing to deliver on what they promised. So Paul didn't want to be a hero. He didn't want to be another celebrity. He wasn't selling anything. He didn't want people to put their trust in him. Everything about his message and everything about his whole life was a pointing away from himself towards Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he says, I decided, I resolved, I made a deliberate decision to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so while he was probably disregarded and ridiculed and ignored by the beautiful and the talented in the city of Corinth, he was powerfully used by God to bring a city to its knees in repentance and faith in Jesus. And Doxa, as we read this letter together this year, as we study it, as we proclaim it, The same thing could happen in our city if we would be so bold and courageous as to make the same decision in our hearts. I think about that I don't know about you I that feeling uh that I felt back in 2016 right standing there at the capitol and just like looking down at campus looking at the capitol looking at myself feeling just the the inadequacy of me this place is too big for me my neighbors are too far from God I don't know how to explain the gospel to these people even when I try to it feels like I can't get their interest no one seems to care that's what I I feel like that on a pretty regular basis here still and I remember when we first got here in, in 2018, I, uh, I took up this new, this new hobby, maybe some of you have heard of it, it's called jogging. I think Ron Burgundy, he called it yaw- jog jogging, jogging. whatever you want to call it, it's, you're moving your legs, you're moving, you're getting your, your heart rate up, I've, I've taken that up since I've gotten here, and I was on a run one morning, and the run that I was on is I was running down, it's called the Southwest Bike Path, it cuts kind of through the west side of Madison, goes through campus downtown, and ends at Lake Monona, And I remember coming up to the point where you pop out of the path and you're standing right there and you see Camp Randall right in front of you, the football stadium. And then just over its view, you also see the State Capitol building and then the campus just kind of starting to sprawl out in front of you as well. And so I'm breathing heavy after this run. I'm standing there. I just remember kind of looking at that, thinking about the day of ministry that I had ahead of me. And I start looking at the people walking around and just asking this question of, what do I really have to offer these people (laughs) You know, why would they ever want to listen to what I have to say when they have all this? Right, we've got these, really, like these three symbols of power in the city. We've got Camp Randall right here. We've got the campus, we've got the Capitol. I've never been able to run all the way to Epic. It's a little bit farther away, but I would imagine that's, that might, if there was like a Mount Rushmore of Madison of the, the most powerful things here, like that would also be on there as well. These are the buildings that represent what has captured the heart of our city. And so I remember standing there and just praying to God and asking him that same question of God, how will we ever compete with this? We aren't smart enough. We aren't talented enough. We aren't influential enough. Just throwing out like this desperate, weak prayer to God. And in my sweat and in my heavy breathing, nothing really happened. Just stood there and then I decided, well, I'm a long way from home. I better turn around and jog back to my, house, and on my way home, I'm actually jogging down Regent Street, and just after you passed West High School on Regent, you're running in between, like, these two cemeteries, okay, and as you're running between the cemeteries, you've got Forest Hill Cemetery on the left and Resurrection Cemetery on the right, and as I'm jogging, I look over to my left, and I start to pay attention, and I see hundreds and hundreds of just these gray-worn tombstones, right, with Names on them of people that lived their lives here in Madison and died here and were buried here. Stories upon stories of people. You start to wonder, I may, you know, maybe some of them worked at the Capitol. Maybe some of them worked on, on campus. Maybe some of them played for the Badgers in, in Camp Randall. You can actually walk around that cemetery and see some of the names and you start to see street names that are here in Madison. Tons and tons of people lived and died and were buried there. You see their tombstones. And then as I'm jogging, I kind of look over to the right and I see this other cemetery and and pretty much the same thing, a bunch of gray tombstones, some of them hundreds and hundreds of years old, names and stories, and then, you know, that little dash on the tombstone that has your day of birth, your day of death, representing the life that they lived, the dreams that they had. But as I was running and looking over to the right, I started to notice there was something else about the tombstones on my right. I saw hundreds of crosses, hundreds of them just over the tombstones, attached to them, etched onto them. And I remember as I was running, I looked back over to my left at this other cemetery and, you know, none of these tombstones had like a replica of Camp Randall hovering above them. For all of the power and the promise and the hope that gets wrapped up into our elections of our elected officials, whether it's the president, the governor, or the city council, whoever it is, no one has ever put a picture of a politician over their tombstone, not one. But as I jog between these cemeteries on my way home, looking to my left and to my right, humbly resting, almost just quietly, inconspicuously above hundreds of these graves, was a symbol of Jesus Christ. And him crucified. And it was almost like as as if Madison itself was quietly declaring that in the end, when it's all said and done, there was only ever one man, only ever one event powerful enough to rest the weight of your life on. And I felt God say to me as I was running, Ronnie, you don't need to know everything. You need to know one thing. You don't need to compete with anyone. It's not about you. It's not about Doxa. It's not about the Salt Company. It is about Jesus Christ, my son, and him crucified. The cross is not in competition with the campus or the Capitol or Camp Randall, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men than men. The cross is in a category all of its own. It is the power of God for salvation. And so maybe you are hearing this from Paul and you've been listening to me and you don't really know why the cross is such a big deal and it is Doxa Church's job here in Madison to make that abundantly clear to you and, and to our city. First, the cross It's a big deal because sin is a big deal. Sin is a big deal. You and I are all born rebels, haters of God. Our hearts, the instincts of them, are actually bent on disobeying God, running away from God, disregarding God, living indifferent to God, selfish, jealous. Any parents out here with toddlers, you're starting to see how you didn't didn't teach them to be selfish. They just were. They just are. They need Jesus. And when you see Jesus Christ, when you see Jesus Christ and him crucified, mocked, beaten, tortured on the cross, what you see is you actually see how we really feel about God. In the New Testament of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these gospel accounts of Jesus' life, they only record A very few people who didn't either abandon, betray, or actively participate in the crucifixion of Jesus. Only a few. And when you realize that, when you see that, we're actually meant to know that we are in the majority there, not the minority. This is what we really think about God. Crucify him. Get him out of here. Get him out of our life. Don't let him tell us what to do. This is the essence of sin. Prideful, arrogant, rebellion, independence from God and this is us this is what we are born with and the cross it also lets us see how God really feels about us in our sin because Jesus he wasn't ultimately put on the cross by the Jews and by the Romans but by God the father Isaiah 53 it says it was the Lord's will to crush him Acts 2.23 says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God to be crucified and killed by lawless men. But when you think about the life of Jesus, when you read of his life, you see that he had no sin, and it wasn't actually his sins that he was crushed for, it was mine, and it was yours. And so if you want to know what it is that you deserve for your rebellion against God, look at Jesus Christ and him crucified on the cross, bleeding out all alone. That is how God feels about our sin. The biblical word would be judgment, wrath. The cross is a big deal because sin is a big deal. And everyone who is listening to this or out there in the world who refuses to come to God for salvation it's because in some part you don't know how big of a deal your sin really is but it's also because you don't know how big of a deal the love of God really is see at the cross Jesus he was suffering for the sin of the world in order to forgive the world In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, for our sake, for the sake of of these rebellious God-haters, he made Jesus to be sin, even though Jesus knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ, he was crucified on the cross for your sin in your place because he wanted to save you from it. Because he wanted to forgive you, because his love is stronger than death. Your sins, they are many, his mercy is more. And when you realize this, when that, when that truth, we Christians, we call what I just said, we call that the gospel, the good news, the great news that God actually saves sinners, that his mercy is more. When you realize that, when it comes into your heart, Paul, he describes this in Romans 5, this is the experiential reality of what happens. It says God's love is, it's poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit who's been given to you. And this is the message that your heart receives and loves. God shows his love for us, and that is, well, we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And so this image of a a cross over your tombstone, okay, whether it's etched on or just kind of tacked on, a cross over your tombstone, it is meant to communicate that the great hope of my life is that someone else paid for my sin before I had to meet God and give an account for it. And the great hope of my life is not in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God, the cross of Christ. There is no symbol of human wisdom that is worthy to put above your tombstone. That's why we don't do it, right? There's a lot of beautiful and brilliant wisdom here in this city, and it would be foolish for any of us to put our faith in it. It would be foolish to put your favorite hobby that you gave so much of your life to over your tombstone. Right it would prove foolish to put your resume that we work so hard on over your tombstone. It would be foolish to put your your Instagram statistics that we are we are all accumulating over our lifetime over your tombstone. It would be foolish to put your favorite political election sign over your tombstone and one day in eternity hell will reveal how foolish it was to trust in the beauty and the brilliance of this world instead of the wisdom of the rugged cross of Jesus Christ. Paul says, for the word of the cross, it's folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, to us who knew we needed to be saved because we're fully aware of our sin, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And if you're listening to me right now, whether here in this room or online, it means that your dash has not been completed yet. still going. You've got a birth date, but we don't know the day of your death, but it's coming. And until it comes, there is a question that hangs over your dash, a question that hangs over your life, kind of this empty place above your tombstone of what is going to be the symbol that you trusted in. And the question is this, will your faith rest in the wisdom of man or the power of God? That's verse 5. The question isn't, will you get a cross tattooed on you or will you buy a necklace or even will you make funeral arrangements to make sure that there's like a cross written on your tombstone? That's not the question. I'm talking about an internal decision of the heart. When you hear the words, Jesus Christ and him crucified, will you like Paul decide in your heart That he is going to be the great hope of your life. That he is going to be the one that you're going to rest on, the defining reality that you stand on. Because every Sunday we, we gather together in this room and we open up this book and we, we live in just this crazy world, this, this world that is clearly so broken, this world, and God bless us, we're all scrambling around trying to figure out how to fix it, how to get on with our lives, but we get together in this room and we open up this book and we look for, for some, someone strong to lead us, someone strong to save us, someone that we can put our hope in, and as it turns out, the greatest source of power in the universe is none other than a slaughtered lamb. When we throw our hands up in desperation and say God saves us, God doesn't send a a military or political savior because he knows we didn't need another one of those. We needed a lamb. We needed a different kind of hero, a different kind of strength. Because of our sin, we needed a sacrificial lamb who would stand in our place under the judgment of God and rise from the grave, defeating sin, Satan, death, and hell. And so the power of God that can actually heal us from our sickness actually flowed out of the veins of Jesus as he bled out on the cross. And as he bled out on the cross, for anybody that wants it, that's the good news of the gospel, no prerequisite, just your need. Anyone who wants it, forgiveness and reconciliation with the God who made you, your creator. And as of now, even even though we... We talk and we preach and we sing about it in this room, the cross, it still seems too weak, too inefficient, too humiliating, too painful, too uncomfortable, too foolish for many. But there is coming a day. The story of the Bible tells us there is coming a day where the power of Jesus Christ and him crucified, it will become an undeniably obvious reality everyone will see it. And that scene is written about in the book of Revelation chapter 7, the writer John, he says this, after this I looked and behold, so he's he's inviting us to to see with him, to see what God showed him. He says, I looked and behold, now he's going to tell us what he saw, he says, behold a great multitude that no one could number so this massive group of of people from every nation from all the tribes and all the peoples and all the languages of the world throughout history throughout every human culture they're all standing there in this massive group and they're standing before the throne they're standing before what turns out to be the true seat of power in the universe and you know it is there they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. He says, they're all clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and they're crying out with a loud voice, hey, salvation belongs to God, our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And as John looks at it, it's like in all the angels, they're, they're standing around the throne and then all these elders and these four living creatures like this crazy scene and you know what they did they all fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying amen amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to be to our God forever and ever amen we open up this book and it turns out that that is the true place of power that is the true place to rest our faith in this world not the wisdom of man but the power of God the slaughtered lamb So our dash is still going for now. And when you stand before God after you die, you will give an account for your life. And when you do, you will either be standing on the lofty and eloquent brilliance of human wisdom or the simple, bloody truth of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Those are the two options. As John saw, salvation belongs to the lamb. But as we've seen in Paul, the decision belongs to us. I pray that we all make that decision and we tell this whole city about it. Let's pray. God, in the, in the silence of this room before we sing, we are just humbly aware we are in fear and trembling before you, that you are God and we are not, that you are good and perfect and we are rebellious and selfish. God, we don't keep our commitments. We, don't, we talk about making a decision today. We have, we have no power to do that. Our sin is so great. And so in this moment, we don't cling to any any inner determination that we have, any resolve that we have, but we bring nothing to you but our need. Nothing in our hands we bring only to the cross of Jesus we cling. We plead the blood. God, if we were to stand before you right now, we would have nothing to say on account of our life and it being worthy of you except for the fact that you made him sin who knew no sin so that in him we might actually become the righteousness of God. God, so those of us that are in Christ in this room, we claim that freshly today and we walk in confidence and God, I pray for people that that are listening to this message of Jesus Christ and him crucified that they would be counted among the multitude that one day will bow down at your feet and say, Worthy is the lamb. Jesus paid it all. We owe it all to you.